Welcome to the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to our referendum is underway, so join us as we discuss how together we can build a fairer, a more equal and a more prosperous Scotland. Our goal is to ensure that our listeners are informed, that they're encouraged to get involved and will hopefully inspire others to think about the possibilities for Scotland. The past few years have only served to highlight what allowing Westminster to make choices for us is like. So let's make the choices we want for our families and our communities right here in Scotland. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP. Now let's find out who's joining me on Scotland's Choice today. Hi, my name's Ben Lake and I'm the Plaid Member of Parliament for Ceredigion. And my name is Michelle Thompson. I'm the member of the Scottish Parliament for Falkirk East. Well, welcome to Ben and Michelle. Uh, Michelle, um, uh, th- this episode is uh, very much talking about uh, the, the state of the union, the state of the UK. We, we're an independence podcast. We talk about these things uh, every week, but we rarely focus on uh, what's happening at Westminster. This week, we've some, seen some pretty disastrous predictions for the UK economy from both the OECD and the British Chamber of Commerce, forecasting the slowest growth of any of the developed nations, and uh, with the Chamber itself saying the economy will grind to halt with inflation rising to 10%. As people who argue for independence were rightly asked to justify how we feel Scotland would fare, do you think enough attention is paid to how the UK is failing Scotland, especially after the promises of the 2014 No campaign? Absolutely not. And as you point out, these statistics are absolutely unbelievable. And let's not forget, of the G20 figures that were quoted, only Russia, that sanction-hit Russia, eh, comes out with worse figures. You talk about inflation, and of course, inflation is the worst in the G7 as well. And funnily enough, I've talked about this in a speech in the Scottish Parliament earlier this week, And as part of that, I dug out some figures taking the most recent 20 years and kind of ran an international comparison of growth rates of output or GDP, if you like. And what did we find? Well, the UK's growth was 68% over the past 20 years in nominal terms, whilst the average kind of large advanced economy grew by 93%. And then you do the comparison with medium-sized countries similar to Scotland, and the average medium-sized economy grew by 138%. That's double the cumulative growth of the UK economy. I mean, these are quite startling figures. And as I always remind people... The key issues that we're having at the moment, the reason for this uh, high inflation, which we may go on to in terms of obviously energy prices, Brexit's right in there, skill shortage and so on, that squarely fits with economic and kind of fiscal policies that reside in Westminster. So I think people need to be starting to look at how do other countries compare that aren't you know, don't have this dependency and large S on the UK government making decisions that don't serve Scotland. And I'm sure it's the same for for, uh, Wales. Well, let's talk about that, Ben. The economic realities are stark uh, for people in Wales too. I mean, the same way as they are for uh, people in Scotland, particularly rural rural Scotland. We've both been campaigning for people affected by the cost of living and the energy price 
uh, crisis, but even simple uh, protections for people such as those struggling with higher energy bills because they're off the gas grid are pretty much ignored. In fact, well, let's be honest, they're completely ignored at Westminster. I can't imagine a, an independent Scottish government of any colour failing to act on this. Do you think the same would be true of Wales? Does, does all of this frustrate you? Oh, if you raise me, and you're right, the the current kind of uh, raises in the cost of living is just another example, or brings out another example of, of Westminster, Whitehall, London indifference. Uh, you know, you've done great work with the Prime Members Bill, uh, the, the 10-minute rule bill, sorry, that you've got to kind of extend the energy price cap uh, to those fuels that, um, as you say, our constituents really depend on. You know, Kerry Gion, um has one of the highest percentages in Wales, at least, of those who are not connected to the mains gas grid. You know, it's a big thing for us. It's a reality. When uh, when the price of um, uh, LPG goes up or, or heating fuel goes up, you know, people feel it straight away. And it's compounded then by the fact that um, our uh, public transport services are in a very sorry state. Um, you know, people depend on the car. Wales is quite bad in that regard anyway, but 80% of all journeys by car are for work. Um, so it's not, you know, people are are being uh, luxurious um, and they just want to drive. Well, driving the Chelsea tractors. They're just exactly. trying to get and, and on that point, did you know I've been reading up today because I'm, I'm beat, uh, beating the drum to extend uh, the rural uh, fuel relief scheme to more areas, uh, more rural areas of, of the UK. And 70% uh, of all SUVs that are sold uh, in a given year in the UK um, are actually in the Greater, greater London area. <laughs> it tells you everything, isn't it? Uh, it? It should surprise you. The trouble is it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> yeah. And that's concentrated in Kensington and Mayfair, <laughs> presumably. Yeah. You know, and you know, the, the, the term Chelsea Tractor, the name Chelsea Tractor has been more apt. And and that's the thing, you know, when you talk to people um in Cardiff, and I have great differences with the Welsh government, of course. I, I think it probably can be Welsh government would be far more effective. But when speaking to, to officials in, in Cardiff, they get it. They know that when it comes to, to, to rural areas, the pressures are compounded. And I agree, agree with you. You know, if they had some of those powers, um, whether it was on fuel duty relief, whether it was some of the larger fiscal powers to be able to help people with their energy bills, they would act. Because even the Labour government in Cardiff, to its credit, I'm probably going to trouble for saying this, but even the Labour government, try to make full use of the limited powers that it did have with some of the discretionary funds to try and make it go a little bit further. Mm. You don't see the same level of care in London. And whether it's a, you know, a white tall thing, I'm not sure. But it, they just, they're completely out of touch. Well, uh, that, that thing about being out of touch is what I want to talk about next. That How would you say that people in your different constituencies are being affected by policies that have come out of Westminster? In the vast majority of cases, policies that they didn't vote for. In Scotland's case, they haven't voted for a Tory government since the mid-1950s. So, so how are people being directly affected in your constituencies by these things? Well, I, I mean, I'll come in on that. And actually, firstly, picking up on the energy theme, in my constituency of Falkirk East, uh, we've got a situation with what's known as the Forgotten Villages that are not connected to the grid. And it's a historical precedent from when that was developed. And of course, we've actually got this complete madness around 
energy provision in the first place in the UK, and probably your listeners will be aware that the 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 rises in the likes of France were restricted to 4% compared to the rises that we've seen in the UK. And Falkirk Council, to its credit, is under or bearing the cost of connected, connecting these houses. And there's a variety of solutions that they'll use. And, you know, sometimes Falkirk Council kind of get it in the neck that it's not happened yet. But of course, it's a hugely expensive undertaking. But people don't seem to appreciate that it was nothing to do with Falkirk Council in the first place why it didn't happen. And who thought it was a good idea to kind of sell off all these national utilities? I mean, energy is utterly fundamental. And obviously the rural areas where the, the you know, we've still got many oil-based systems and so on. Now, I'm not suggesting that immediately the Scottish government, even if it had the power to do so, should immediately renationalise them. But the point about choices over policy is fundamental. So energy is definitely one. Now, we've heard a lot, obviously, about the cuts to universal credit, and that would be equally well affecting people in Wales. And the Scottish government has put in place the Scottish Child Payment, for example, and has active plans to double that. Now, that is money that they will need to take out of their existing fixed Mm -hmm. budget. That needs to come out of other budget pots, and that is a mitigation of Tory policies on top of a whole number of other mitigations. So poverty and endemic poverty affects my constituency of Falkirk East the same as it does in other areas. And I sense very much, going back to your comment about Ben, there seems to be an utter lack of regard from Westminster of how people are being affected. And when people, and I know it's been quoted before, but it makes it no less shocking, having to choose between eating and heating is an utter disgrace in an energy-rich country, particularly like Scotland. Well, of course, now, now due to the rising cost of living, there's all trench people who can't make that choice even. They don't even yeah. have the ability to choose between heating and eating. Um, Absolutely. And it's uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, extraordinarily uh, challenging for people in that position. Uh, ben, ben, what about um, your constituency? Are you finding that there are policies that, uh, that people didn't vote for there that they're having to bear? Yeah, well, in a similar way to Michelle, you know, Wales, I don't think, has voted for a Tory government since, well, before the 1920s, you know, such has been the, the common sense for the good people of Wales and, and like their Scottish brothers and sisters. Um, but we found that the indifference is probably the biggest um, issue that we have, you know, in, in Wales, we haven't really been able to bounce back after the, the deindustrialization. Um, of sort of heavy industries. Um, and that is one thing. There's always a debate as to whether there was a way of keeping going some of the industries or not. And I, you know, that's a fair debate to have. What is clear, though, is the way in which it was allowed to just happen a kind of a smash and grab sort of braid and then no thought whatsoever about what uh, would go to replace um, those key pillars of, of the local economies across, uh, you know, huge tranche of Wales. And, and that's led to the situation today where, you know, a quarter of our children were living in, in um, relative poverty before the current crisis. And, and we haven't had more recent statistics, but the Welsh Government um, came with an announcement uh, just before Rishi Sunak's latest, is it a budget, is it not a budget sort of statement, um, saying that they fear that it could well go over a third now 
um, before we hit the winter. And then God knows what will happen if, if there's no action again. And, you know, when you have that situation and then you see that the little support that was offered through universal credit, they scrapped the 25 lift, which was disastrous yeah. against, and let's be honest, against even the advice of DWP officials, mm-hmm. you know, the local job center officials were, were, you know, telling us, please, you know, if you can do anything, this 20 pound uplift is really, really important. Uh, no, I don't, they cut that. Um, then when you try and, and approach government ministers in London to say, well, look, um, could you do something about the price of rural fuel? You know, it's really kind of hurting people. Mm-hmm. You know, the first kind of response I had from a, uh, I won't name them, but an official in Whitehall, was to say, well, I don't really know what, the, what you're worried about, Mr. Lake. I mean, because let's be honest, you know, they, they don't have to drive around. They could use public transport. Mm-hmm. And I went out and say, well, okay, good luck with that if you live in Thanewi Brevi, um, a village just outside one of the main towns in Kirigui on the Rano bus services. So you're then either going to cycle or walk the 10 odd miles um, hilly terrain, uh, not quite as hilly as the Highlands, true, but um, <laughs> you know, still hilly, um, to go to the doctor, to go to the shop, uh, to go to work. Mm. Um, but it's just that indifference. Mm-hmm. And there's no plan. If you listen to the UK government ministers in the, in the kind of mess of rhetoric that they give us on a daily basis, they just chase headlines. There are no actual solutions. And if everything was going okay, you'd be annoyed. But when you have a situation where an already impoverished, struggling population are then being fed on just mere rhetoric, empty rhetoric, mm-hmm. no real solutions, it's infuriating. And that's where I think this current UK government um, will eventually uh, come to have to pay because they've delivered nothing. They're not offering anything. Mm-hmm. Then they have the nerve then to criticize uh, Scottish government in many cases, and sometimes as well the Welsh government for trying to do things with you know much less power. Mm-hmm. We, um, we, we, Michelle and I are, are very used in Scotland to seeing, particularly over the last few years, promises being broken by, uh, by the Tories at Westminster, but the, not uniquely by the Tories, I've got to say, um, previous years, but we've seen things in recent years, such as the carbon capture and storage project at Peterhead of and the rug pulled out of it, even though it's the best place to do that, and the investment going elsewhere. Um, in the past week or so, we've seen the, uh, the link between England and Scotland on the high-speed rail link, HS2, quietly being scrapped uh, by Westminster, despite the promises that this was going to revolutionise, um, you know, things for people in Scotland. A really obvious question for you now. Does this kind of thing surprise you? Are you asking me or Ben? Because I bet from us both the answer is no. <laughs> of course it doesn't. It certainly doesn't surprise me, you know, and of course it was to use the parlance a good day to bury bad news. Let's face it, as Boris Johnson's still in the ropes due to, to Partygate. I mean, there's always been a sense of it's over there somewhere, it's up there somewhere, but there's a serious point to all of this. We know as you emerge from difficult economic times, Infrastructure projects in particular are so valuable at growing your economy. And uh, I mean, we've been told for years, oh, don't worry, you'll get a bite of the cake as well. And of course, as it then comes to pass. And I suppose the other example, you you mentioned the Acorn project, which everybody I know who's been involved in that is utterly shocked that they they weren't selected. They just can't understand it. But then you've got things like the, um, the levelling up 
uh, funds which seek to bypass the democratically elected Scottish government with, to kind of focus on pet projects. And we saw the uh, report from Meg Hillier's committee, the public audit, is it public audit? A committee in Westminster the other day that basically said they decided where the money was going to go even before applications were made. <laughs> Absolutely outrageous. And you look at things like the Ure Urine, uh, sorry, European Marine Energy Centre up in Orkney, which is a fantastic cluster pulling in business, pulling in academia. And they're now going, well, where do we get funding? And they're kind of left high and dry because a levelling up fund is focusing on what we would regard as tinkering type projects. For example, I can I can acknowledge that we're getting a couple of extra roundabouts in Falkirk. Um, so I'm not surprised about it. We've seen the history of it happening over and over and it affects everyone, frankly, across the UK this vortex, as Vince Cable, that is London, the southeast, that sucks everything in. It doesn't serve any of us, and we know that. I mean, all the economic statistics tell us that when you have this such huge inequality. So I'm not surprised, and I'm sure it will happen again. So time to wake up, people of Scotland, <laughs> and, and notice what you notice. Over to you, Ben. Yeah, well, well, here, here, Michelle. Um, there's an old saying that uh, some... Uh, so the first kind of Welsh radical MPs in, say, in, the, in the late Victorian uh, era, they said that uh, when England catches a cold, Wales gets pneumonia. Um, <laughs> and I think that really just typifies, you know, if, if there was ever, you know, a need for, you know, white wall to cut back, to cut back on projects that, that benefit Wales and, of course, Scotland in a similar manner as well. But never, never the South East England. You know, that, that's almost the golden triangle is there for a reason. You know, you can never cut there. And, you know, you see it... Uh, you asked about um, whether there are any promises that the Conservatives made uh, or the UK government has made and, and, and broken. Where do we start? You know, the HS2 was a big debate um, in Wales. And for, for a couple of reasons, without going into too much boring detail, the first is that we don't get any bad consequentials for it. Mm -hmm. um, despite the fact that the Treasury's own analysis said that it would be uh, to Wales's economic detriment <laughs> once it was finished, which is, it is ludicrous. You'd think having done their own homework and say, oh, actually, it's going to be bad for Wales. Let's give them the consequential so that they can do something for themselves. No. Um, so that's a sore point. There is a big debate at the moment mm -hmm. when we then realise the Conservatives promised back in 2010 and then again 2015 that they'd electrify the North Wales uh, railway line and they'd also electrify the South Wales main line uh, to Swansea. Now, if either of those two uh, projects had happened, it would have been, you know, quite a, a big boost uh, to the regional economies in the north and the south. Um, what did we have instead? Well, they've forgotten about uh, the North Wales Main Line. It, it's conveniently kind of disappeared in the midst of time. And then as far as the South Wales Main Line goes, you know, you'll get it to Cardiff and you'll be happy. <laughs> For those who aren't familiar, yeah. that literally means there are two stations in South Wales. I mean, it's almost... Stop it after the seven tunnel, guys. You know, don't bother. <laughs> you know, if you're only going to go and take it to Cardiff, it's literally Cardiff, Newport, and then you're in England. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's laughable. But of course, whenever we have the temerity to challenge us, the answer is, you know, your bits. Uh, we'd be grateful for it. And, and I, I know uh, I'm kind of coming back on top of you, Ben. I hope that's okay. But you make an important point because if Scotland uh, had much greater fiscal powers to go and do projects themselves uh, like at scale they absolutely would but that's where the Scottish government 
is also stopped. It has way too limited powers. So, for example, to to borrow properly, uh, because where do we think that the UK government is getting all this money to pay furlough, for example? Well, it was, what, about $1.58 billion at the close of the last financial year? You know, I mean, these are huge borrowing figures, and yet they stopped the Scottish government doing that. And they stop them, therefore, doing these kind of projects. And in some respects, you think, well, if they want to, good on them. If they want to focus on London, the South East, I'm sure other people in England don't like it. But don't stop the Scottish government being ambitious for Scotland. And I must admit, that annoys me as well. And, and also, Michelle, you know, the biggest contract I've seen the, the British government doing now for, for at least 20 years, since the age of devolution then, has been to kind of very effectively market this idea that uh, Scotland or, or Wales um, you know, wouldn't survive because there'd been a deficit. And conveniently kind of overlooking the fact that, as far as I'm aware, the UK has been a deficit for you know, something crazy like 99 or the last 100 years. Um, so this idea that the UK government or UK PLC is always balancing the books, and yet Little Wales and Scotland couldn't possibly hope to do it. It's yeah. really, really And it's something I'm certainly going to try to call out more uh, from now on, because I, I just noticed it's just the hypocrisy um, it's sickening. Well, yeah, here you go for for the the boffins listening to this podcast. UK public sector net borrowing was 151.8 billion in the financial year ending March 2022. 151.8 billion. So that's a, that's a deficit at UK level that's been borrowed on behalf of absolutely everybody. So uh, you make a great point, Ben. But of course, they're saying lots of billions flow in from Scottish resources now to uh, to try to fill some of that hole, as it, as has happened uh, many times in the past as well. And Ben, uh, Michelle, certainly you've been there too. We've, we've been at Westminster for a number of years now. Uh, we talked about that indifference just now, but what's shocked you most about seeing how Westminster functions as an institution? Is it capable at all of coping as a modern democratic system or is it stuck in the 1700s oh i um short answer is it's still stuck in the 1700s <laughs> i have to be honest with you i think as an institution it's still to really come to terms with the act of union between Scotland <laughs> and, and uh and england you know the, sometimes you have to pinch yourself to remind no this is not england's parliament you know this is supposedly UK Parliament. Um, uh, the, the COVID pandemic forced a lot of uh, parliaments around the world to, to change the way they worked. And um, there's some really good examples across the world. I mean, the Scottish Parliament and Welsh Parliament um, were able to really you know, lead the way in that uh, regard. They were very early uh, adopters of, of the hybrid proceedings, and, um, and that was great. And, you know, Kicking and screaming, you know, the UK Parliament was dragged uh, to some modernity as well. And there was a period where we could even, you know, quite revolutionary now, but we were able to vote remotely. And, um, you know, the sky didn't fall in despite the smog's greatest fears. Um, and it worked quite well. And um, I can't remember whether it was a month or two months behind uh, remote voting, but that was it. Yes. Um, as soon as after that, no, 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 that's too far for us. We'll go back now to a bit of a hybrid blend so you can contribute virtually. And that was good and was useful. But no, when it comes to voting, you have to win person. Um, so we then had the ridiculous scenario. We'd have MPs from across the land 
sneaking in long queues at a Westminster Hall. And if people aren't familiar, do have a Google uh, for it, because it is ludicrous. If it was a part of a Monty Python sketch, you'd think it was far-fetched. Um, but no, we did that for weeks and weeks on end, if not months. And then finally, somebody had the bright we, idea. We were, we're in a queue that was passing the queue coming the other way, <laughs> going through uh, some of the, the hallways. It, it was quite bizarre. At the time, we're supposed to be social distanced and we're all kind of like crammed in together. Sorry, carry on. But... But that was it. And then finally um, came to the idea that, no, what we'll do instead is um, we'll have, uh, we'll upgrade the division lobbies, which uh, which I used it in uh, in those commas, and we'll allow our sort of security bit of ID passes to act as a sort of, you know, a digital uh, voting card. Um to try to speed things up a little bit. And don't get me wrong, I'm not opposed to that sort of idea, but when you could have had and did have a very successful digital voting and um, remote voting system up and running, to then renege on that, which is so, I mean, backwards is, is putting it politely. And I think that to me just typified um, the reluctance actually of the institution to even entertain very, very simple and modest um, reforms when you had a time where across the world, parliaments, you know, of all sorts, were really grasping, you know, the, the benefits of of remote working and, and hybrid proceedings, and, and you know, for for, for what well, for you, Andrew, like me, you know, going down to Westminster is a bit of a it's <laughs> a trek, yeah. <laughs> and it was a good way to level, you know, in terms of better accessibility in the future. If they wanted MPs yeah. of of different backgrounds, you know, yeah. it could have been a real opportunity for them to grasp the modern age. But they refuse it, and that refusal, in my mind, speaks tells speaks of volumes. Well, Michelle, you can of course provide some contrast with the what we've just said heard about the archaic and outdated Westminster uh, system, and and of course Holyrood, which is a modern-looking, modern-operating yeah. parliament. What what are your reflections on on both parliaments now you've served in both of them? I know, I know, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean. I totally agree with what uh, Ben is saying about the archaic institution that is Westminster, having spent a bit of time there. And the people I feel sorry for, in addition to UMPs, obviously, <laughs> staff. I'm sure yeah. the staff must be so frustrated. Do they really want to work in something that looks backwards all the time, claiming uh, tradition is everything, and they're making themselves appear as just an irrelevance? And, of course led by Rhys Mogg, who just increasingly becomes a caricature yeah. of himself. And, and what Polyrood did was they were absolutely out of the starting blocks. And that was, that was before I was elected, but they put in place a hybrid model, which we have stuck to. So our voting to this day, you can elect to vote online or vote in the chamber. And I mean, it's it's just so much better because if all our efforts all the time are focused on using our time efficiently for the benefit of our constituents, it's really made a difference for people and people, as you point out, who have to have to travel. And so the actual technology being so much better. And we actually recently had a consultation and people were asked for their views. And guess what? Of course, people want it to stay because it provides that flexibility. It's just like any other institution where most businesses, for example, will continue uh, hybrid uh, working. And indeed, at the moment, we can speak in debates both in the chamber and on online, but we hadn't yet got it cracked that people could take interventions if they were speaking 
uh, from wherever off site. But after this summer recess, that is also going to be put in place. Mm -hmm. uh, so using the technology, I'm really proud that the Scottish Parliament has seized the initiative and is already looking to uh, improve it. And I suppose the other thing in terms of archaic institutions that I really, really notice is uh, because I listened to uh, PMQs the other day. I was driving back from somewhere and I, I thought it sounded even worse than when I used to be there. What a pointless, fatuous waste of time where questions are asked. There's just bawling and screaming. And to, thus far, the vast majority of the time, debates are conducted pretty pleasantly in the Scottish Parliament. And of course, you've got your set piece as well, which is FMQs. And I notice progressively the Tories are trying to, like they're shouting over people and all the rest. And it's really not something that mm. I agree with. What they're trying to do is to make the Scottish Parliament look like it's Westminster. But Westminster has very little relevance and resonance for ordinary people. And I really don't want that to happen. And I'm in, in awe, I must say, uh, our First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, who gets hit with this kind of stuff, booing, jeering, and she just goes right mm -hmm. back to the facts and figures and keeps calm. Yes, <laughs> you know, good honour. I'm not sure. I'm not saying I could necessarily do that, but it's really quite noticeable. Well, it's interesting you should say that about it being noticeable, because during the council campaign, I was out doing a few, knocking a few doors, and I met a lovely uh, couple from England who'd moved uh, to Inverness. And we're having a chat about, you know, the, how they were settling in and everything. And they said, oh, one of the things we really like is watching uh, the Scottish Parliament. Said, what a difference, uh, they said, to the Parliament at Westminster in that circus. Uh, with it. So I think people can see uh, from outside yeah. the, the differences that uh, we've got that. Ben, ben, I want to talk a wee bit about um, uh, politics in Wales and the uh, arguments for independence there. Because a lot of our uh, listeners won't necessarily be as aware of those arguments as they are the arguments for Scottish independence. How would you compare the, the two cases uh, between Scotland and Wales in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the arguments for independence? Yeah, well, interestingly, and, and this is often uh, a curse of, of Welsh kind of politicians and, and Welsh figures is that, you know, we're obsessed with history. Um, but I, I think there's a, there's a good little saying um, that, you know, history is uh, written by the victors, but understood by the losers. And, um, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> and of course, in Wales, it's kind of history in the, in the United Kingdom is very different to that in Scotland. You know, we were conquered you know, by that as fact. And uh, we slowly then assimilated into effectively of being a Shire or set of Shires of England. So we lost a lot of some of those early institutions that can give um, a really important civic platform for, for kind of something, a platform for civic nationalism. Yeah. You know, we don't have a justice system. We lost our own uh, legal jurisdiction and, and, and laws. And we didn't until much later than, than Scotland have our own sort of education, a distinct education. Mm -hmm. Um, system of our, of our own um, and um, I think it is quite telling that because of that when you know uh, the Scottish Parliament was reconvened in, in yes. 99 you know the Welsh Assembly was having its first sitting and, and it's, it's a subtle but I think a significant difference which explains a little bit then how the Scottish journey to independence is in my opinion far more advanced uh, than, than Wales is and not just in terms of actually reaching it um, but also in terms of the debate surrounding it, you know, I, I look up north with envy at just the quality of public debate 
um, in Scotland about Scotland's future. Um, we can't really say that it's been the same in Wales, but and that ends the negativity, the pessimism, the optimistic <laughs> slant of it. More recently, and by that I mean probably two years, um, we've seen you know the, the stirrings now of of, of a proper grassroots um, and organised civic campaign for, for independence uh, in the form of the Yes Cymru, um, which was a spin-off, of course, from the 2014 uh, Yes campaign in, in Scotland. Um, and during the uh, pandemic, their membership swelled to 24,000 um, I believe at the height. Um, and of course, Wales only has 3 million people. Um, so it is smaller than Scotland. So 24,000 paid members was a, was a big, people sat up and all of a sudden, you know, the established kind of unionist parties in Wales were beginning to attack Yes Cymru and to ridicule some of the arguments. And, um, uh, but very, very recently, and, and I'm cautious in raising it now because it might be a sore point, uh, Wales, the last football team in the World Cup. And uh, for those who watched it, you know, the anthem that was being sung by uh, the Welsh fans, whether they were from, you know, the southeast of Wales or northwestern Wales, was Amalheed by David Iwan. And Amalheed is one of those kind of totemic national protest songs um, that if you had told me three years ago that I would be sat there in the pub watching. Wales going to a football world cup to begin with, but more importantly, <laughs> that um, Gareth Bale and the entire Welsh football team would be singing with David Iwan a Mauhid. Mm-hmm. I'd have asked you what you were drinking and can I have some? Because it is remarkable. And what's exciting about it is it is organic. It is something positive. It's people being proud of its heritage, but look, you know, not being kind of beholden to the past, looking to the future mm-hmm. um, and being confident. And it's interesting that other parties in Wales and the unionist parties have noticed this as well. Yeah. Because one of the first things they did was try to uh, kind of attack it and you know try to draw some nonsense about uh, Heed and, and the origins of the song, which were quickly kind of brushed aside. And you know the fact that you had Gareth Bale singing it at the top of his voice yeah. was more powerful than anything. We, sadly, we <laughs> can even do. I can't quite remember the saying, but you remind me of that old saying about first they ignore you, then they ridicule you. And uh, and so forth, but uh, yeah, t- talking about uh, ridicule, um, the Tories at Westminster have really been exposed over Boris Johnson's party gate, following it, it, what should really be a, a a series of even greater scandals, but uh, they just haven't been as prominent and haven't caught the public's eyes. Uh, but policy wise, do you think there's a lot between Tories and Labour? You know, when think about things like Brexit, immigration, etc., is this really the best the union has to offer in terms of leadership, or would it be say, fair to say that it's whether the Tories or it's Labour in charge, it will be pretty much business and usual, as usual, and we'll see no real uh, change there. But what are your thoughts on that, Michelle? I mean, the Labour Party in Scotland, because uh, there is not a Scottish Labour Party, um, are in a bit of a, a jam because you're right, they've rolled over for Brexit unbelievably in the full knowledge of the damage that's doing, particularly around uh, the shortage of, of labour. Um, and I mean, funnily enough, I had a conversation with a Labour MSP the other day, and I, I was saying to her, look, what is your objection to Scottish independence? Because, and, and she was kind of, and I had some sympathy with that, fearful of change. And I was saying, look, 
what a probability would you assess that Westminster as an institution, regardless of whether it has Labour or Tories, will, will carry on the same, doling out the same thing. And she conceded that was a very high probability. And I said, and what do you attribute the probability that Scotland will do things differently, given the different policies within the limitations of devolution that Scotland would do? And she then again conceded, yeah, uh -huh, I, can, I, I can see what you're saying about that. So I, I suppose we, you know, people need to understand that Westminster is a self serving institution. You correctly point out, uh, Drew, about the issue of Partygate, but of course it's not just Partygate. Partygate occurred because of an increasingly lax approach to uh, institutes of state, and some people refer to it as state capture. I mean, it, people will probably remember what happened with, and it's being investigated by the National Crime Agency, Michelle Moon and mm. procurement of of PPE equipment. I mean, this was jobs for the boys, and this is the institution that is now Westminster. It famously doesn't have a written constitution, but it goes much, much deeper mm. than that. And uh, we do still have our institutions of state in Scotland with really clear rules. So I think people need to understand it ain't going to change with Labour, even if they can get elected. And frankly, I don't see a sign of, of that. Keir Starmer missed yet again an open goal in coming out about party gate. I mean, really, was that the most passionate he could muster? I mean, I don't think that would have persuaded anybody, to be honest. Ben? And, and you know, I have to <laughs> agree with Michelle. I think that um, what is increasingly kind of becoming apparent is that Labour will not touch the Brexit question with a barge pole. Um, and, and in my opinion, it's, it's a missed opportunity for them politically because Brexit is a disaster. Mm -hmm. um, I, whether you speak to some of the employers, I'm sure we all have them in that situation. Well, I, think the, I think the polls, Ben, are now showing that the public yeah. uh, agree that it's a disaster. I think there's more than 50% of people think it's it's gone extremely badly. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I just don't understand this sort of conspiracy silence mm. that they've all sworn themselves to. Um, uh, for Wales... As with Scotland, you know, the European Union is such an important market um, for, for many of our businesses. Um, but also, you know, one of the things that uh, our schools locally used to do every year, uh, sorry, for every year nine, so that would be their third year of, of secondary school, um, they'd go for a, a summer trip to the um, battlefields of, of Northern France and learn about the First World War and the importance of peace and that. And it just struck me, because I was speaking to my old teacher the other day, they can't do that anymore. Um, because such is the rigmarole of having to go to the European Union now. You know, taking a bus full of, of uh, teenagers is just not really that easy anymore. So they've lost out. Some generations from now on have lost out. That's just one example. Uh, but of feeling a part of that shared European heritage that we have, um, the importance you know, of, of the 20th century and, and the importance of working together um, for, for a better future. They've lost that. Um, and for what? You know, there are no benefits. And even, even if you buy some of the, um, I think it's Rhys Mogg now as the responsibility of selling the benefits of, of Brexit. Um, and, you know, much like a, a snake oil steals money, I suppose. But um, even in the, in the very few areas where there might well be some argument to say, well, okay, 
you could, for example, vary the rate of fuel detention yeah. for different parts of the, of the UK. They're not using it. No. They're not interested. You know, and it begs the question, where is Labour in all of this? You know, it's, it's bordering on the criminal, actually, but they're so mute on this hot topic, which, let's be honest, in different forms, it's going to dominate UK politics anyway um, for the next decade or perhaps a generation. I think at the end of all this, we'll have a lost generation in you know, economic terms, uh, a generation would have lost out a lot of the benefits that we were able, as, you know, as my generation, were able to enjoy, um, only to end up back in Europe in some form of I will build as an independent but <laughs> <laughs> well let's uh, let's hope for that we're, we're coming to the end of our time here and I wanted to ask a question that we ask all of our guests on at Scotland's Choice and uh, you know th this is uh, basically if you could make one new policy or change an existing one that we can't uh, either in Wales or Scotland due to Westminster uh, what would it be so we'll start with you Ben I would um, and this perhaps will illustrate just how different our you know, Wales and Scotland's journeys are towards independence. But what I would really like um, to change at the moment is for the Welsh Government to have the ability to um, support the Planning Commission to energy projects over federate um, you know, capacity, installed capacity. We don't have that at the moment. And so a lot of the big tidal opportunities um, that do exist off the coast of Wales close to us we have to wait for Westminster and of course they also control the crown estate uh, as it is in Wales so if we were able to get that um it would be very exciting and okay maybe not for this winter and not next winter but at least in the future we'd be able to really sort of uh, benefit from the vast um resources that we we have on our doorstep but currently are either being filtered off over the border or not being used at all that would be mine and Michelle immigration 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 i mean it's hit scotland so badly i mean we in common with many other uh, economies have you know an increasing kind of age profile we have many people who choose to retire to scotland who are not economically active and are therefore not paying tax and the scottish government works so hard and you'll know this from your constituency drew to attract people bringing their talent bringing their energy bringing their hard work and whisper it paying tax into Scotland and that door has been shut now and of course the best brains coming over in terms of uh, academia and if you recall Drew when when uh, the Brexit vote took place Scottish government wrote a document and proposed uh, Scotland's place in Europe yeah exactly mm -hmm. and uh, of course they just shut the door to that and it really is utterly criminal and I feel so sorry for people who have gone before in the Scottish government who made such determined attempts to uh, attract people to our shores we want people to come here young talented hard-working people and there was one thing I could do and I suppose thinking about it this is one of the areas where I believe they are utterly fearful of Scotland being independent and back in Europe you can imagine the influx of new talent wanting to take advantage of Scotland's uh, Scotland's a whole variety of things, uh, jobs, culture, it's, it's academia and so on. Uh, and of course, all those businesses that would want to move to Scotland to take advantage of, of access to the European Union. So no wonder they're terrified. But I'm 
so regretful about that. And I don't want to, even if I weren't an independent supporter, I don't want to be part of a UK that looks inwards and backwards. A yesterday that never was. I don't want that. I want a brighter future for people that come after me. End of. Michelle Thompson, Ben Lake, thank you very much indeed for joining us on Scotland's Choice. Thanks for listening to Scotland's Choice. You can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot and you can watch the full-length videos on YouTube. If you can share this podcast and our videos, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice. Mm-hmm.